Hello, good, thank you. And welcome again to Sunday at 6. My name's Andrew, I'm the Assistant Minister at St John's, and we're going to finish off, as we heard, our series on Leviticus, which is the last six weeks we've been going through a very strange book, but we're getting to the end and going to think about what it all means. Now, I think you can tell a lot about people by the stories that we enjoy, by the media that we consume, so the books that we read, the movies that we watch. I think often we're drawn to them because they speak to us about the big things we're concerned about, our big desires, our big hopes, or our big anxieties. So you you might have noticed one of the big trends in recent years is the popularity of TV shows and movies about zombies. Have you noticed it's a thing? Um, You know, they're everywhere. The movies, not the zombies, they're they're hopefully not real yet. Uh, And some people suggest that Zombies are really about a fear that the world is, um, we're turning into, we're losing our humanity in the midst of all the things that we own in the modern world, but we're just trudging through life. And so we, we tell stories about brave people destroying hordes of zombies. We want to be real people. Um, another kind of story that is popular at the moment is the post apocalyptic story. Uh, can anyone tell me where this picture comes from? Any pop? Dan? Mad Max Fury Road, 10 points to Gryffindor. So fantastic. Um, <laughs> a good movie. So post-apocalyptic stories asks what would happen after the end of the world, after it, you know, what would, be, what would it be like to live in the aftermath of a nuclear war or if there was an environmental catastrophe that destroys our civilization, or if we're taken over by killer robots, that kind of question. And again, these stories, we love them because they do tap into a fear that a lot of people have or things we are worried about. You know, I think for a lot of people, our lives seem very fragile at the moment. There's all these environmental issues we're worried about, social issues, political problems that seem to be um, driving us to a place we don't want to go. And so the stories like this ask us to be honest and to face it. Is this where we're going? Is this the path we're onto? Is our world going to end? Are we going to face ecological disaster? Is there going to be war and violence everywhere? Are we going to die? Um, is there any hope for the future? So these are the stories we like to tell. And The series that we've been doing on Leviticus is actually a series that addresses this concern that people have um, because it tells us that um, God is actually concerned about the world and where it's going and whether we're going to have a post-apocalyptic future. Um, In the Bible, we learn God's the creator of the world and he's very concerned, as much as we are, about um, the path that we're going down as humanity and whether we're going to destroy ourselves and destroy the world that he's he's given us since we've rejected him. And he doesn't want that to happen. So he's chosen to work with people to restore our lives and to restore the world. And so Leviticus is actually a picture of how God does that. And we've looked at Leviticus and the rituals and laws in it. Um, There are lots of different things. It's basically not all about... we, We read it, we think it's about the sacrifices and about strange rituals about cleansing. But it's actually a picture of restored relationships. That's how we've been talking about it. And how God's people can learn to live in a healthy way. And that starts in Leviticus with the renewal of the fundamental relationship that we have, which is our relationship with God. And how do we put God back in the centre of our lives and worship him? So we've looked at the place of uh, the tabernacle in Leviticus, which was the big tent where they worshipped, and they um, did the system of animal sacrifices there to help them worship God, and they tend to know what it meant. Um, And they did that to deal with their sin, to learn to be thankful to God and come back to him. And in that sermon, which I gave about three weeks ago, there there was a key, four weeks ago, there was a key phrase from the law in Leviticus, which I'd like us to remember, where it says, uh, sorry, Andy, um, there was a law in Leviticus, when you're doing a sacrifice, it says all the fat belongs to the Lord. Have we, lo- 
Probably a bit slow. That's all right, it'll come. Uh, so when the, when the Israelites would make a sacrifice and offer an animal to God, um, all the fat of it they had to burn on the altar as an offering to him and not eat it themselves. Now that seems strange to us, but we saw actually that what it meant is a symbol that God is to be put first in our life. He gets the best. It's a symbol of our renewed relationship with him. Um, in our second topic, we looked at what does it mean for Leviticus to have these laws around purity and cleanliness and washing yourself and um, your house and your clothing. And we saw that what in Leviticus, this new relationship with God that we're called to have, it should lead to a changed relationship to ourselves and how we think about our identity. And so understanding the importance of the kind of people that God is able to live with and the kind of people God wants us to be. And so there was a key phrase again from that from that. Uh, sermon, God's command to his people, he said, be holy because I am holy. And all these laws about purity are about remembering what holiness is supposed to be. And so, because if you're God's people, if you're following him, you become more and more like him. And we deal with things in our lives that separate us from him and uh, come closer to him again. Then in the third week, we looked at what does it mean for a community of holy people if they're going to be holy in their relationships with each other? And Leviticus, we saw, was very clear on the need for God's people to be people of justice and generosity and forgiveness. And that's summed up in a phrase I talked about a lot that night, uh, love your neighbour as you love yourself. This is in Leviticus, it talks about how we should treat each other. And we, we saw that Jesus actually took this straight and, and repeated it in his own teaching about how we should live. And finally, last week, we looked at how Leviticus talks about the need for us to have a proper relationship with the whole world, the whole creation, particularly the animals and the other living things that we live with and the land that we live in. And so, again, the key, there's a key phrase that I think summarises that, where it said, the life is in the blood. It's a, it, that's a phrase that comes up again in Leviticus. It's saying that the natural world that God's made has a life in it, its own life that doesn't belong to us, and so we can't take it and consume it for ourselves. Um, the, f- the lifeblood of the animals and the fertility of the land actually belongs to God. And so we should use it in reverence to him and with care and not exploit the land and animals for our own use, our own needs, uh, without, outside that relationship. So those are the four, week, four relationships that we've looked at and seen how Leviticus deals with them. Today, as Teresa said, we read from the last bit in Leviticus, and it ends the book by sort of summing up and describing the point of all these laws and what they were supposed to do. And God tells the Israelites that the result of living this way, of following his laws, will be a life of blessing um, in the land they're going to live in. So they'll live in peace and prosperity, and God's going to live with them in their midst. So verses 9 to 11 of that passage, if you have the Bible, is really the key verses. God says to them, oh, he'll look on them with favour, he's going to make them fruitful and increase their numbers, keeping their covenant with them, and you know they'll have so much food that they won't be able to eat last year's harvest before they get the next one. And then verse 11, which I think is the next one, is the key. He says, I'm going to, I will put my dwelling place among you. I won't abhor you, which means I won't stand apart from you, I won't hate you. I will walk among you and be your God. and you will be my people. This is the big promise that he makes, that he's going to be with them if they live his way. And what God is giving them in these laws is a way of life that's going to bring restoration to them and make them agents of God's healing in the world. But he also warns them in the rest of the chapter after our reading that if they don't do this, if they ignore what he says, if they don't follow this way, then for them, they are going to experience sort of the end of their world, this post-apocalyptic 
future is going to be theirs, and they're going to have all those the curses of that um, future. So violence, environmental problems, sickness, and a broken relationship with God. Things aren't going to go well for them if they choose to um, ignore what he's said. So he's basically giving them a choice. He says, I've, I've given you these laws, how are you going to respond? Um, and there's a sense of the importance of how they choose to live in response to what God has said. So as we finish Leviticus, if you read it like that, there's a sense in which it gives a very neat and tidy picture of life with God. So very clear rules and laws to keep, covers all your life. And if you do them, everything's going to go well for you. You'll have a great relationship with God and you'll have a happy and prosperous life. Um, It's a straightforward picture. And I think most of us would question particularly whether it's that clear, really, in real life, if you follow God faithfully, that you won't have any problems. Um, So that's a problem we might have when we read Leviticus, of the simplicity of it. But there's actually a deeper problem for us when we read Leviticus, which is that the laws and the promises of Leviticus, as good as they were as we've looked at them, in the end, they didn't actually seem to do the job. They weren't sufficient to make people live the way that God wanted them to, to be holy. They didn't actually work. And in fact, if if you follow the rest of the Bible story, you see in the end the Israelites chose to take um, the other path, the path away from what God wanted them to do. And and their their world did end in one sense. They lost their land and everything um, that they had. And so for us then, when we read Leviticus, we might feel that we're left with a series of laws that are very strange, we don't understand them. And in their their own day, they didn't have the power even to change the community that God um, gave them to. You know, and so as we, in the first sermon, Kirk, Kirk talked about the idea that in the years after Leviticus was written, the Israelites realised this and they started to look forward and really yearn for the day when God was going to do something about this problem. When is he going to change people in themselves, in their hearts, and actually help them to live this way that he wants them to, inside them, so they could be really holy? And so when we read Leviticus, in the end it shows us that the problem that we have as human beings, this post-apocalyptic way we're going, is not to do with the rules and that govern our behaviour, it's not to do with the religious things that we do, it's actually to do with our heart and, and the, the fact that that needs to be changed. And so the laws of Leviticus show what God actually wants from people is that he'll just be, he's going to be at the centre of their hearts and that his life is going to flow through him, that's what he wants. The problem is that he wasn't almost never at the centre of their hearts. And this is what Leviticus and the whole Bible calls the problem of idols. So our reading started with a reminder of this idea, which is basically the first couple of the Ten Commandments bundled up together. So in verse 1 of the reading, it said, Do not make idols, or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves, and don't place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. So if you, th- if you see the word idols, you think of what an idol might be. You, we might probably have a picture in our mind of a statue of a god or a goddess. It might look really weird and grotesque or be gold-plated. And, um, so that, that, isn't, that is what an idol is. But in the Bible, the idol is a bigger, broader idea than that. And essentially it means anything other than the, the true god that we set up to worship in our life. Um, something else that takes the centre place in our life apart from him. Something else, you know, if you can think all the fat belongs to the Lord, well, it gets, the idols got the fat. The people would sacrifice to them. And the Bible tells us that we set up idols because there are things that we perceive to be more desirable than God uh, and, and what God can give us. And in ancient Israel, that meant, yes, they had their literal idol statues that they would worship and they were images of things that, of prosperity usually, of things that they wanted. Uh, for us, it's usually not that straightforward, but it is still a problem for us. The reality is the same. 
And if you think, honestly, think about the problem of idolatry this way, if you think about the heart of our life, um, sorry, Andy, uh, just got the next picture. Um, the problem of idolatry is that if we look at the heart of our life, it's, it's never actually empty. If God isn't in the centre of our life, something else is going to be there. And whatever else that something is, it's going to shape everything in our lives, in all our relationships and the way we behave. And so the big question that we should take away from Leviticus and, and its ending is, well, what's at the heart of our life and how are we going with this task of living with God at the centre of our life? And if we can ask that question, then we think, well, how does Leviticus tell us about how we might uh, go about fixing that if that's a problem? So if you want to think about what, what, what might be our, our idols, so we, we've got to look at not what, you, what people say we believe, but actually about what we do, because these are things about our heart, and our behaviour comes from our heart. So if we, if we see how we behave, we'll see what's inside us. So I want to think about some of the possibilities of things that might be idols for us, to understand more deeply what that means. If, so if we think about these three different relationships... I think each of those have things in them that can become idols in the centre of our heart, except apart from God. And think about what the effects of having that might be on us. So firstly, it is really possible to make an idol out of our relationship to ourselves, uh, out of our own self-identity and our image of who we are. So for many of us, if you opened up our heart, you'd see an image of ourselves there as we think we want to be, like a little god or goddess that looks like me, only better. Um, and that kind of idol, if that's, if that's something that's in the centre of our heart, that, that, that will come out when we're obsessed or really driven by the idea of the need to succeed, our own personal uh, victories and triumphs, being able to reach the top of wherever we, whatever field we're in, to be the best, to be the biggest, to be the greatest, to influence the most, have the biggest impact, to be a world leader and to be the best. And we, might, we also might want other people to worship us as well. Maybe you'd like to have an idol of me and you. And so... I want to be famous. I want everyone, everyone to respect me. I want everyone to like me. Or perhaps we might have an obsession with our own personal well-being, you know, obsessed with our health or our appearance, our fashion, sexual attractiveness, having a perfect body, all these things that people give their lives to. And all those things are signs that actually, well, we may be making an idol out of ourselves and putting us in the centre. And Leviticus reminds us, as we saw, that to do that actually avoids asking, what does God want us to be? Be holy as I am holy, he says. If we do those things, that's not how we're going to live. So that's one way. Uh, others of us, I think, make an idol out of our relationships with others. So for some people, it's the group identities that we have, so our nation perhaps, our cultural heritage, our religion or our ethnic group. So it's, it's easy to put those things above everything else and serve them in a way that makes them the centre of our lives. So I mean, if you think about it, what causes wars? What causes all these atrocities we see on the news? It's people placing their own identity as a nation above other um, people. You know, I'm going to make my nation great again. What do you think that's saying? <laughs> This, we're at the centre and we're going to do what it takes to succeed. And even if that means killing people or oppressing them or doing all those things. Um, so that's an idol. And maybe, but maybe our idol is our family, perhaps. They're in the centre and we sacrifice everything to them and what we think that we want for them, without reference to what God wants for our family. Or we might make an idol of romantic relationships. You know, I want this. This is, where I, this is my heart. This is the, the fulfilment of all my dreams. You might run away from life and responsibilities to, start to chase it. So Leviticus says this can be, other people and our relationships can be an idol too. And the result of that is we don't love our neighbours as ourselves. We don't care about them in the way that God wants us to. 
And finally, the creation can be an idol for us. Um, we can put the enjoyment of the good things that, in life, the good things that God's made, in the centre of our lives and shape our life around that. So that might look at some of us about dedicating our lives to becoming wealthy or what we think of as comfortably well-off if we're more modest um, and having the things and the experiences that money can buy and doing that as the source of our life. Or the creation can be about security and the land is a particularly um, important part of this. So all of us know about the great Australian dream which is about owning your own home and land. And I think it's true if you looked inside the hearts of many of us in Australia you'd find that house and land perfect house and land package in the centre of our lives um, because we sacrifice so much for it. So much of the way we work and the way we live has that at the centre of it. And this, or that idol or this idol of creation makes us forget that the life of everything and everything in the world belongs to God, not us. And he's going to hold us accountable for how we use the resources of the world and what we put our trust in. So th- these are some of the idols that we might get caught up in. And the issue, of course, and it's really important to say, it's not whether those things are bad or good. All those things I've talked about are probably good things uh, for us to have in our lives. I'm not saying they shouldn't be part of our lives. What we're saying is that if we want to know what is at the heart of our life, we need to look at what we do and what we actually, how, we, how we spend our time. I've heard it said that if you want a simple test to know what your deepest values are, you, you just need to look at two things, your bank statement and your calendar. So how do I spend my money and how do I spend my time? That'll tell you what we really value because those are the pre- most precious things we have. So you may, you may be starting to think, oh, there are some things in my life that might be an idol for me. And if you want to think about whether that's the case, a good test I've found is something's probably an idol for us if we think that it's impossible for us to change the way we behave in a certain area or that it could never happen. You know, maybe we see that money or pursuing money has too great a hold on our life. But if I don't have it, how am I going to live? It's impossible not to want, not to want this thing. Um, or if I stop caring so much about my identity and my work and, and building myself up that way, I might feel better, but who would I be if I didn't have my job? It's impossible for, to, to know myself without it. Or if I gave up the dream of a perfect romantic relationship, what would I hope for? I have no purpose in my life. So it's this idea that it seems impossible to change our behaviour because the cost seems too great. That's probably where an idol is because something's at the heart. It's something that we really desire. And the fact is, I think it actually, to be honest, is impossible for us to give up idols. Um, It was for the people of Israel. They couldn't do it because we don't have the strength in ourselves to do it. And we may even struggle to have the desire to give them up um, because we're addicted to them. So that's, that's basically, we're at the same place that the people of Leviticus were. And that's why we continually have said in this series that we need to read the book of Leviticus, which is open there, through the Jesus window. And what that means is we need to interpret it through what Jesus did and what Jesus said because he's the answer to the problems that the book of Leviticus raises for us. It's the, Jesus is actually the answer to the problem of idolatry because Jesus was the only person who's ever actually kept the laws of Leviticus perfectly. God the Father was in the centre of Jesus' heart always, perfectly, and at all times. He actually did this. And so he's the fulfilment of these laws. And that's a start of a new thing that hasn't happened before in the world, people, someone actually doing this, and then giving other people who follow him the ability to do that as well, to have the Spirit of God in our lives changing us. 
He's done everything. Jesus has done everything that Leviticus was supposed to achieve. That's why we need to read it through him. The book of Hebrews, which we saw earlier, speaks about Jesus and what he did um, and, and how he achieved this. It says, therefore, in Hebrews 10, 19 to 22, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled from a guilty, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. He's saying Jesus has actually gone into the heart of life on our, for us and he's, he's given us the ability to come near to God again with assurance that we can do it. And so what Leviticus teaches is, is that idols can only be driven out of our hearts by coming back to God. And uh, Jesus has made that happen. He's done that for us and he's going to give us the spirit to do it. That's why we follow him. And so if we look at Leviticus through the Jesus window, it's not a series of laws to keep or not to keep because we think they don't apply anymore. It's a vision of a renewed life with God and what that possibility is. And so it helps us, though, by giving us concrete examples of the kind of things that God's people can do to put him at the centre. And those principles still remain, even if the particular laws that we read, they don't. And so I want to just think about one particular key thing, um, a practice in the book of Leviticus that's really helpful for us and the principle behind it. So, as I said, if we look at our calendar, we can see what our idols might be. And one of the things that the Israelites did to combat their idols was they did actually change their calendar and they reshaped it around God. And so they put into their time, they had regular days and regular festivals that reminded them of their relationship to God and the need to come back to him. And if you read in chapter 23 of Leviticus, it lays these all out. There's seven festivals festivals but all of them are actually in practice just variation of the one festival the main one which is the weekly sabbath day so in leviticus 23 verse 3 it says there are six days when you may work but the seventh day is a sabbath of day of sabbath rest a day of sacred assembly you're not to do any work wherever you live it is a sabbath to the lord and now you might hear that's the fourth commandment in the ten commandments to keep the sabbath and not to work um, on that day and in chapter 26, we saw if right after verse 1, which talks about idols, we have verse 2, which talks about the Sabbath. It says, observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So these two things are related, idolatry and the Sabbath. And if you, if you don't know what the Sabbath is, we've talked a bit about it at St. John's in the past year. And last year we did a bit of an experiment with it, um, a six to six day in May. But if you don't know what the idea of the Sabbath is, it's the principle that God's people give a full day every week to rest from work and to worship God. Um, in ancient times, when Israel started doing this, this was a revolutionary idea because no one else did that. And they had never done it as well when God gave it to them because these were people who'd been slaves for hundreds of years and they had no rest when they were these slaves in Egypt. And so they had to work there every day. But God says, you're in my people now, you're going to enter the land with me. And if you're going to do that, you have to take time to be with me to rest in my presence. And so every week they did this from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And Leviticus makes a lot about the Sabbath. It talks about it a number of times. And if we think about what it means, we can see that actually it's something that starts unravelling this practice of worshipping idols. Um, because it means, he's going to say, every day they're going to have a week, a day, uh, sorry, every week they're going to have a day when they intentionally come back to God worship him and acknowledge that he's the centre of their life. And that's the point of that day. It means that people every week are going to have a chance also to remember that they're called to be holy. 
and to examine their hearts, look at what's going on, spend time reflecting on what they need to change. It's a chance to rest and to realise their identity doesn't come from their work. You can't because they're not doing any work on that day and they realise that God is the one in control. It doesn't matter what I achieve or what I, what I produce. And the Sabbath also softened the relationships between people uh, and, and neighbours by bringing a day of peace into their community. So people were encouraged to celebrate together, uh, to forgive each other and to be generous to people in need on that day. And finally, the Sabbath day gave God's people an opportunity just to enjoy creation because it's good. Um, not to work it or to produce it or to have to get things out of the land, but just to let it be. And as Tim, I think Tim talked last week that in Leviticus it actually has a rule that the land has a Sabbath of its own every seven years where it's not worked at all. It needs to rest too. So for the people of Israel then, the Sabbath was a practice that it reinforced this vision of a life with God at the centre and it gave them a taste of what, it, what that means. So for a day each week, they had a chance to experience a life with God at the centre and what that, what that means. And so if we're looking for ideas about how we live out our own faith and do the same thing, this is a wonderful example of the kind of thing that we might try to follow. I'm not saying, though, to, to be clear, that if you want to be a Christian, you have to keep the Sabbath. You know, we, have, we might not be able to. We have very diverse responsibilities and ways of life and things that go on we can't do. But when, you know, and when Christians have tried to do the Sabbath strictly, often they've created a lot of legalism around it and it's become a real burden on people. So I'm not saying we have to do it. But the other, the other side of that, which is actually more common, which is basically to drop an idea like this entirely and not to make any distinction in our calendar is a problem because it, as a, if you're a Christian it leaves us vulnerable to idols because there's very little in our lifestyle then that actually challenges their place in our life. The culture in which we live and the idols that tempt us. What, what's going to make us reevaluate the way we're living if we don't have something that brings us back to God regularly? And so the Sabbath that we see in Leviticus, it's, I think it's a symbol of how our lives can be changed when you put God first. The, the benefit of that. But also what it might cost for us to do that. It's costly um, to not work one day a week and to let, to let things go. And that's been the point of this series, I think, is just to think about through what a picture of our whole lives with God can be if they're centred on God. And as we've seen in Leviticus, this means thinking in detail about many different issues and having concrete things that we do. Um, so the, the fact is, following Jesus is not easy and it gets harder all the time because... The pattern of life in a country like Australia is actually not designed to help us grow as Christians and to know God better. You know, the ordinary Australian life and the pattern that it has is not going to help you grow as a Christian. And in fact, it might take you the other way. That's just the way it is. It's not to say that Australia's bad or that we're, you know, it's bad. It's just it's not going to help you to know God better. So what we hope then is that the vision in Leviticus of a life with God is going to challenge us again as individuals and as a church to think through what are we doing to grow in our relationship with God? Are we taking that seriously? How are we going to grow in holiness ourselves? How are we going to have good relationships with others and be good stewards of God's creation? And that's a journey. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's going to take the rest of your life if we're going to take that seriously. And it might call us to change a lot of things along the way. And this is something that 
we've really just started thinking seriously about as a church and in our leadership and um, we're just getting a taste of what it means and some of you had a bit of a go at it last year or in our training day last month. We just thought about what, is it, what are the first steps that we might take towards finding our pattern of life with God that's going to put, help him be at the centre of where, what we're doing. Um, it's a big process and it's very daunting but it starts with a desire to come back to God in a fresh way. Over here in the morning service, we did an activity, and we can do this later after, in the songs after my sermon, uh, looking at the different relationships and where God might be calling us to change. So we're going to invite you, if during the singing you want to come over and reflect, is my relationship with God, with others, ourselves, um, uh, myself, others, or creation, something that God is calling me to work on or an idol that I might be called on to challenge? You can put a sticker uh, where God's calling you at the moment. Because it's something that it's worth thinking, well, well, how is God speaking to me at the moment about my relationship with him? And we're going to, this is something that we're going to keep coming back to as a church again and again over the years because this is what it means to follow Jesus. But... As we finish this series, we need to remember, I think, before we get into this process, oh, I've got all these things to do now, um, to remember that when we read Leviticus, it's not calling us to take up a heavy burden of duties and obligations and all these things I have to do and do them in my own strength. But it's actually a call to enter into freedom, the freedom that God gives to people who live with him and that that Jesus has brought to us. In Leviticus 20, you saw in Leviticus 26, God says, "If if you live my way, you will experience the blessing of knowing me and the peace and joy that that brings. I think that's something that's worth giving a, a try uh, because God it does keep his promises. Uh, not that our lives are going to be easy if we follow Jesus, but that God will be there in everything we do as we go with, walk with him. And that will set us free. And then we can be the people that we're supposed to be. That's what um, Jesus came to do. And that's a hard thing. It's really hard to follow Jesus. And it may actually seem impossible to do what God asks us and to change the things that he's asking us to change. But that's the good news of Jesus. He has conquered every single idol that there is in the world, every sin and even death itself. And so we can be free in him. We should take heart as we follow him. So that's why I really love the last verse that God speaks to us today in verse 13 of of chapter 26. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. So let me pray as we think about that. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've broken um, the idols and the things that hold us in chains and called us to live a new life with God at the centre, transforming us, transforming our relationships in the world in which we live. We thank you that because of you, we know that you have a good future for us and not a future without hope. And we pray that you would call us as a church and individually to seek you again, to return to you uh, and to change things in our lives with your, by your strength and your spirit that need to be changed. And we pray that we would encourage each other in this process. In Jesus' name, amen.